Hello and good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Martin Reed, uh, and I'm the Deputy Director of LSE Library. And I'm very pleased to welcome you all to today's event, which is part of LSE, uh, LSE's Literary Festival, um, which in this centenary year of the Russian Revolution has as its focus the theme of revolutions. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Laura Beers, um, who will be speaking about Ellen Wilkinson, one of the most important figures in the history of the British radical left. Uh, Laura is Associate Professor of History at the American University uh, and a Birmingham Fellow at the University of Birmingham. Uh, she is a distinguished scholar whose works have focused on political history and international politics between the two world wars, as well as the intersection between politics and the mass media and the relationship between politics and gender. Uh, Laura is the author of a biography of Ellen, uh, El Red Ellen, The Life of Ellen Wilkinson, Socialist, Feminist, Internationalist, published by Harvard University Press in 2015, uh, as well as Your Britain, Media and the Making of the Labour Party, and the co-editor of Brave New World, Imperial and Democratic Nation Building in Britain bet Between the Wars. Um, the Library is particularly uh, pleased to welcome Laura uh, and to be hosting today, uh, today's event, um, as our um, collections are particularly strong in the areas covered by Laura's research, um, and which were of such importance to Ellen Wilkinson, including, as they do, material on British politics and British political parties, Britain and Europe, international relations and politics, as well as the Women's Library Collection, which covers the struggle for suffrage and equality in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, for those of you uh, engaged with social media and Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is LSE LitFest, um, and I'd like to ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt uh, Laura's talk. Uh, and also to let you know that the talk is being recorded and we hope will be made available as a podcast, assuming there are no technical difficulties. After the talk, there will be a chance for you to ask uh, questions to, uh, to Laura, um, who will also be on hand um, afterwards to sign copies of her book, Red Ellen, the Life of Ellen Wilkinson, which, which is, uh, will be on sale outside. So uh, now I'd like you to join me in welcoming uh, Laura, and I'll hand over to her. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think I'll actually go behind the lectern because I have a PowerPoint with some images of Ellen um, to share. Um, there's just the book cover to start off. So I put together this talk, which I had perfectly, well, not, maybe not perfectly, but had timed out to about 40 minutes. Um, and then I woke up this morning and saw the by-election results. Um, and I thought, in light of Copeland and in light of um, the sort of debates about the state of the Labor Party, and particularly about Corbyn's leadership, that I might say a bit more than I otherwise would have done about Ellen's relationship to ideas about party loyalty to, um, to the leader, both Ramsay MacDonald and later to Clement Attlee, under both of whom she served under, um, first as a junior minister and later as a cabinet minister, minister of education. But what I had initially thought I'd talk about and what I do still intend to, to stick to is her relationship to the theme of um, this year's festival, the theme of revolutions, and specifically to the Bolshevik Revolution. Because Wilkinson, despite being the second female cabinet minister in Britain um, and a successful Labour Party politician, was also one of the founding members of the British Communist Party in 1920. 
and remained a member of the Communist Party until 1924. And she did have, she was an early supporter of the Russian Revolution, and though she became estranged from Soviet communism um, by the late 1930s, had a, you know, a sort of emotional attachment to what um, people on the left tended to refer to as the Soviet experiment um, throughout the interwar period. So I'm going to talk a bit about her decision to join the CP, to attend the founding conference um, at the Cannon Hotel in 1920. Her decision to leave and what that says about her ideas about party loyalty um, to the Labor Party. And <clears throat> then talk a bit about her her attitudes towards the 1930s leadership. But I want to just start out um, by reading briefly from the introduction to the book to give you an overview um, of Wilkinson's career as I try to present it in Red Ellen. Because most of you, I think, will, um, will know Ellen Wilkinson's participation in the 1936 Jarrow Crusade. It's the moment for which she's been best remembered probably even more than for being um, the second female cabinet minister. And while Wilkinson played a crucial role both in organizing and in acting as um, a leader and figurehead of the crusade in 1936, the focus on the crusade has, I think, kind of limited our understanding of her career to domestic politics and specifically to her support for Britain's unemployed. And the story that I try to tell in Red Ellen is the story of a woman whose politics was written on a much larger canvas who was a supporter of um, the Bolshevik Revolution, both you know, empathetically, but also firsthand on the ground. She travels to Russia for the first time um, in 1921. She's you know, very active in continental politics throughout her career. She's a frequent um, visitor to the United States and sees herself as having something to say, both about um, domestic events within the US and about the transatlantic relationship. And, um, is also very concerned with colonial politics and active in support of the Indian National Congress in Britain. So I'm going to talk about the way that her domestic politics um, and her international politics come together, and I'll read briefly from the introduction which speaks to that. So, born into a working-class family in South Manchester, Ellen Wilkinson had not left the northwest of England by the time she won a scholarship to the University of Manchester in 1910. In the 35 years that followed, she helped found the British Communist Party and met Russian revolutionaries Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky in Moscow. She was the 10th woman to gain a seat in Parliament and became a renowned activist advocate for the poor and dispossessed at home and abroad. And just to give you sort of some sense of the at home and abroad, here is Ellen as a young MP shortly after um, she's elected to Parliament at age 33. She's the youngest woman in Parliament and the only um, Labour female MP. And then here she is meeting with William Green, the president of the um, American Federation of Labor, a couple of years later in Washington, D.C., with Punjabi villagers um, on a pro-Congress tour for the Indian League in 1932. She spent several months traveling um, all around India and up into what is now Afghanistan and speaking on an anti-Nazi platform in the Tiergarten in Berlin in 1932 um, when she campaigned for the Social Democrats in that election which notoriously led to a plurality um, of Reichstag representatives returned for the Nazi party and the rise of, um, rise of the Nazi state. She was the first British politician ever to speak on a German um, election platform. So she is very much <coughs> 
a cosmopolitan figure by the end of her career. And along the way, she forges a remarkable series of friendships. She's on intimate terms with the leaders of the Congress Party, the German, and the German anti-fascist resistance, and the Spanish Republican government. As a young woman, she spent Christmas with the Nobel Peace Prize winner Jane Addams, and she had a tempestuous, if mutually admiring, relationship with Winston Churchill. In an era when several female parliamentary colleagues, including Nancy Astor, the first woman to sit in Parliament, and Lady Cynthia Mosley, entered Parliament on their husband's coattails, Wilkinson was a self-made woman, although her repeated affairs with male colleagues inspired rumors of favoritism throughout her career. So Red Ellen tells the story of Ellen Wilkinson's remarkable life, but it also offers a portrait of a period in British and international history when men and women from an unprecedented range of backgrounds were lured onto the political stage by the desire to reshape domestic, imperial, and international affairs. The first decades of the 20th century witnessed almost limitless optimism about the potential to remake a brave new world. Feminist reformers brought a new set of often conflicting ideas about the relationship between men and women in the social and political spheres. Communist, socialist, Nazis, and fascists sought to reshape their country's domestic and foreign policies. And committed Democrats and pacifists found themselves forced to grapple with the question of political violence in an increasingly polarized world. In recent years, scholars have shed substantial light on the transnational communities of men and women committed to creating a new and better future in the decades after the First World War. Yet there's still much we do not know, especially about the work of the non-communist radical left. And though Ellen um, is a founding member of the British Communist Party, after her departure in 1924, she moves in these kind of left-wing radical circles that are more on the fringes of communism, um, though outside of its sphere. Ellen Wilkinson was more active in her pursuit of social change than were most men and women of her era. But she was only one of many radical Britons who sought to transform not only British but international society. Amongst this generation of activists, Wilkinson is exceptional for the sheer breadth of her participation in both domestic and international affairs. And you've got these images of her here in the US, India, um, and Germany. Here she is um, in Republican Spain at this, signing the um, treaty that establishes UNESCO after the Second World War. Um, as the chairman of the Labor Party at the 1945 party conference um, that sees Labor's um, election as the first, for the first time as a majority party. She was an inveterate leaguer from the Plebs League, um, which was a Marxist educational league in the 1920s and 30s, to the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, whose papers, um, as Martin mentioned, are held at the Women's Library, at least the um, British section in which I've made great use of. Um, and to the League Against Imperialism, to the India League, um, under whose auspices she traveled to India in 1932. Like Zelig, she pops up almost everywhere. Her sheer ubiquity marks her out from her peers, as does her later promotion to the rank of cabinet minister in Attlee's post-war government. But her exceptionalism serves to highlight the scope of opportunity within the interwar left, I think. She's exceptional, but she's in some ways also typical of of the possibilities um, that existed in this period for radical activists. No two activists follow an identical path to political consciousness, and the pursuit of social justice means different things to different people. Still, by focusing on one woman's political work, in Red Ellen, I try to sh shed broader light on the culture of interwar radicalism in Britain and internationally. 
And in doing so, I'm seeking to reframe our understanding of the British left in this period, highlighting the extent to which many British radicals viewed themselves as members of an international socialist community, despite the exceptionalism of British labor's political development. And maybe this is something we can talk about in Q&A, but this way in which the British left has seen itself as either apart from or linked into a kind of wider European and international um, radicalism. (laughs) The international networks forged by radical men and women are crucial for understanding their approach to colonial and foreign policy in this period. Their analysis of international affairs, in turn, impacted how they approached their own domestic political challenges. As today's Labour Party struggles to come to terms with with its relationship to political radicalism, Red Ellen seeks to raise important questions about both the history and the future direction of the British left. So as I've mentioned, for many readers, this emphasis on Wilkinson's international activism in the book may come as a surprise. Nearly 70 years after her death, Wilkinson is still best remembered not for her fight against war and fascism, but for her role as the leader of the 1936 Jarrow Crusade. And if we think about... Images of Ellen, this is probably one of the ones that is most likely to be familiar. Here she is marching into London um, on the final day of the crusade. Or actually the penultimate day. It ends on Halloween. <coughs> and so the Jarrow Crusade was a 300-mile march of 200 unemployed shipwrights and steel workers from the Tyneside to London to petition the government for assistance for their blighted community. Ellen was the town's MP from 1935 until her death in 1947. And although the march was not her brainchild, she gave her time and energy to planning and publicizing the event and marched alongside the men for much of the route. She famously burst into tears as she presented the men's case at the bar of the House of Commons, overwhelmed by her colleagues' indifference to Jarrow's plight. At the time, the Labour Party and the Trade Union Congress sought to distance themselves from the crusade and from the rebellious, red-headed MP who made the men's cause her own, afraid that the crusaders were under communist influence. And here, the long shadow of the Bolshevik Revolution um, and the Comintern in Europe is clear. There's a real anxiety um, that this crusade is somehow tied up with communism, and there's an unwillingness on the part of the Trade Union Congress to give any funds um, to assist the crusade because they're worried that some of the marchers might be communist and they might be unwittingly underwriting communism. Yet, um, in a shift of political culture and attitudes, less than 15 years later, the Labour Party had embraced the Jarrow Crusade as its own. And this is a political poster used in 1950 and again in 1951. Um, Remember unemployment, don't give the Tories another chance, vote Labour. And it's got an image which doesn't include Ellen, but is of the the marchers on the Jarrow Crusade. Had she lived to see the 1950 general election campaign, Ellen would have appreciated the irony that many of the same men and women who had refused to support the Crusaders in 1936 now campaigned beneath posters of the Crusade. Um, It was a lesson that she doubtless would have thought was better learned late than never. The Jarrow Crusade is a crucial moment in Ellen's political career, but it was only one piece of a larger project to remake British and international society in a more just image. At the same time she was helping to plan the march, she was deeply involved in the campaign to gain official recognition for the Spanish Republican government in its war against Franco's insurgents. And if we sort of skip back a bit, um, she made several trips to Spain throughout this period. So this one where she's with um, child victims of bombing in Spain was a trip that she made 
with Clement Attlee and Philip Noel Baker, um, two other labor MPs in 1937. But she goes again that same year with a feminist um, contingent, Rachel Crowdy, Elner Rathbone, and the Duchess of Athol, um, to look particularly at issues affecting women and children. That They also compile a secret report on um, naval operations off the coast, which is then circulated to um, many anti-fascists within Parliament. <coughs> oh. So she's deeply involved um, with the Spanish Civil War. She's also coordinating at that same time Nehru's visit to Britain to plead the case for Indian self-government and, and working with Jewish refugee organizations to raise funds to spe- smuggle men and women out of Germany. Between days spent marching with the Crusaders, she argued the case against fascism on the floor of the House of Commons and on public platforms before both general audiences and the feminist groups to whom she for years championed the causes of women's rights. For Ellen, as for others of her generation and outlook, the ways in which she understood both domestic and international affairs were intimately interwoven. She brought a Marxist economic analysis to her understanding of both continental fascism and British imperialism, and in turn, her appreciation of Britain's role in international affairs affected her analysis of domestic politics. Her feminism was imbricated by a class analysis that affected the way she perceived the status of women both at home and abroad. We now use the term intersectionality to talk about you know, the experiences of, on the one hand, you know, women, but specifically working-class women. And it's not a term Ellen would have used, but she was very conscious of the idea that a working-class female was facing a different set of challenges and had a different set of experiences than her middle-class sister. And though she was a feminist who spent a lot of time socially in middle-class feminist circles, she always remained acutely aware of what was specific about working women's experience and how she needed to act as a voice for those women. To Ellen, the campaign against mass unemployment in Britain was linked to movements against fascism and colonialism, and the campaign for women's rights, in that each was a crucial front in the war against injustice and human suffering. In 1940, when Ellen was appointed parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Pensions in Churchill's wartime coalition government, and Churchill makes this joke um, that his coalition government is so wide in its politics that it spans from Lord Lloyd, this arch-conservative on the right, to Ellen Wilkinson on the left, even though she's only um, a very junior minister. But when she is appointed as minister picture post, and this is one of my favorite images, um, runs a a several-page spread on her, which includes this picture of her in her flat with her zebra duvet. (laughs) And the photo caption, one of the photo captions reads, she's always been open to new ideas, persistent in promoting those in which she believes. Her new job gives scope to her passionate desire for social justice. After her death on February 6, 1947, the Manchester Guardian noted that the woman who ended her career as Minister of Education had, quote, brought to public affairs an acute mind and a bullient spirit and the dominant thing in her, a passion for social justice, an intuitive and devoted partisanship for the poor and the weak. And looking back at Ellen's career, the historian Kenneth O. Morgan would similarly write, she remains unique as a voice for social justice in her generation. And I think that that um, both is part of what propels her into the Communist Party in 1920 and is a commitment that remains with her after she leaves it um, in 1924. So I conclude the introduction to the book by saying that what follows is a portrait of how Ellen Wilkinson developed her understanding of what social justice meant in the first half of the 20th century. 
and how she devoted her life to achieving a more socially just world. The defeat of European fascism, the formal end of colonialism, and the introduction of state welfare programs across the Western world brought an end to many of the evils she fought against. Yet a century after Ellen began her political career, we're still confronted with a world beset by poverty, economic equality, and human suffering, and tyrannized by dictatorial political regimes. So I would hope that Red Ellen's life story is as much as an inspiration for activism today as it is a history of increasingly distant radical past. But I now want to shift things and sort of you know, devote the rest of the talk to talking about that increasingly distant radical past, what it looked like to Ellen, how she operating within it um, came to terms or came to understand um, the Russian Revolution and what it would mean for her politics at home and how she related to the Labor Party throughout her political career. So the story of Wilkinson's quest for social justice at home and abroad is intimately tied up with the story of British and international communism. Ellen and her radical colleagues moved in and out of the Comintern orbit throughout this period, sometimes working with communists in pursuit of common goals, as when Ellen sought advice from Wall Hannington, the communist organizer of the National Unemployed Workers Movement, which organized several other hunger marches across Britain in the 1920s and the 1930s on the logistics of organizing the Gyro Crusade. Or when she collaborated with the international commentator agent, Willy Munzenberg, um, to, find, to raise funds for Jewish refugees and support for the anti-fascist cause. At other times, she fought against the communists when Stalin turned his venom on the allegedly social fascist, social democratic parties of Western Europe, forcing those on the labor left to choose between loyalty to the party which many, including Ellen, saw as the only viable alternative to conservatism, and support for a more radical course at home and the so-called Soviet experiment abroad. So I'm going to talk about a few of these um, key moments in her career, beginning with her decision to join the Communist Party to attend that founding conference at the Cannon Street Hotel in 1920. So here again, I'm quoting from um, Red Ellen, this time looking at Ellen, age 28, working as a woman's organizer for the Amalgamated Union of Cooperative Employees, which is the forerunner of USTA. Um, so it's a, you know, a shop workers' union, predominantly. And volunteering her time as a researcher at the Quixotic Fabian Research Bureau, which is an offshoot of Beatrice and Sidney Webb's Fabian Society, the same Webb's who are so crucial in the founding of the London School of Economics which had enthusiastically enthusiastically campaigned for a concept termed guild socialism during the First World War. Guild socialism was one of the many forms of utopian political experiments to emerge in the early 20th century. Briefly, the guild socialist advocated for the cooperative ownership and operation of the means of production by a group of industrial guilds. The guilds would produce not for profit, but for the good of the community, workplace practices, organizations, hours of labor, and admittance into the guild would be determined by the guild members themselves. Prices would be set not by the market, but in consultation between the guilds and the state, which would represent the interest of the consumer. And all workers, manual or professional, would be paid a similar living wage, determined by their guild. Wages would be paid regardless of the demand for labor, so a worker would not have to fear the loss of his livelihood during unemployment. Goods would be sold by a producer's guild, which again would not be driven by a profit motive, but by the determination of social welfare. Women working in the home would be provided for by state revenue. I mean, this is a real sort of utopian vision, and it's something that, as a young woman, 
um, Ellen and many of her colleagues kind of get very wrapped up in. And the Fabian Research Department kind of devotes itself to trying to um, basically develop an understanding of how the industrial system worked during the First World War and then to lay out a blueprint for how it might be changed um, to create a better new post-war world. Their enthusiasm for workers' control led Ellen and other supporters of the National Guilds Movement, as it termed itself, to greet the news of the 1917 October Revolution with overwhelming enthusiasm. The group's resident comedian, Maurice Reckett, set their feelings to verse in a ditty based on the popular World War I song, Katie, um, which went, cha-cha-cha-chotsky. I'm totally toned up, so <laughs> I hope your ears don't bleed. Beautiful Trotsky, you're the only commissar that I adore. When the moon shines on the Kremlin, I'll be waiting at the Soviet door. Um, yeah, you get a sense of how these guys are kind of childish, right? They're all in their 20s. They're recent university graduates. They're you know, wedded to this utopian experiment, and they're enthusiastic about um, the Russian Revolution. But as the October Revolution morphs into the new Soviet state, those members of the Fabian Research Department who did not support the Bolsheviks increasingly argued that Bolsheviks had sacrificed this ideal of workers' control on the altar of state socialism. And in retrospect, this is clearly the case. But Ellen, along with other Fabian researchers, such as Robin Page Arno, William Meller, and Olive Button, who attend the July 1920 conference that founds the Communist Party of Great Britain as Guilds League delegates, remained hopeful that the dictatorship of the proletariat could be reconciled with workers' control of industry. And it's a hope that there's a lot of ambivalence about, even from the start. And Ellen's decision to join the Communist Party is the result of significant soul-searching. While she supported the aims of the Russian Revolution, she's not without reservations, even from the beginning, about communist tactics. And you see this um, in the memoirs of one of her friends and colleagues, Rajani Palm Dutt, who discusses a trip that the two of them made together over Christmas 1919. Um, as to attend a meeting of university socialists. In December 1919, she crossed the channel for the second time in her life, and notably, and this is you know, to emphasize the various strands of her international activism, her first continental visit had occurred earlier that year when she'd attended the inaugural meeting of the Feminist Pacifist Society, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was held in Zurich. This time she was bound um, not for Zur to Zurich, but to Geneva, um, with various colleagues from the Fabian Research Department, including Dutt, and two other members of the University Socialist Federation, which Ellen had been a member of um, as an undergraduate at Manchester University and on whose executive she continued to serve, um, and whose papers are also many of them held here, <laughs> and to attend an international conference of socialist students. I have spent a lot of time in this library. <laughs> When the students, nearly 100 young men and women from France, Britain, Germany, Switzerland, Yugoslavia, and the United States, assembled in Geneva, the ensuing debate exposed the gulf between the radicalism of many supporters of the Bolshevik Revolution and the more moderate approach favored by, amongst others, the British Labor Party. The continental students who were committed supporters of the Moscow-dominated Third International, um, better known as the Common Term, a revolutionary socialist body devoted to the overthrow of bourgeois society, if necessary, by force. The British delegates, on the other hand, were divided between supporters of the Comintern, including Dutt, and those like Ellen who followed the Labour Party in maintaining their commitment to constitutional reform. 
Given their differences, the British delegation determined to remain neutral between the two factions, to the frustration of their comrades. In Dutch, recoll- in Dutch recollection, accordingly that night, a fraction meeting was called. It's very communist. Um, was called of the communist representatives to decide what to do with the English. We were allowed to be present as silent spectators. The discussion was held in an attic and continued into the small hours. At one point, the police arrived in the house in search of the Spartacus students, the German communist organization. We adjourned through an attic window into a neighboring attic, and the discussion continued. The pros and cons were weighed. Our organization and line was analyzed relentlessly, like a body being dissected on a mortuary table. At the end, the decision went against us. As we came away in the cold air of that December night, Ellen Wilkinson said to me, and she had plenty of experience of trade union, union, Fabian, and labor infighting. This is the most ghastly, callous, inhuman machine I have ever witnessed. I said to her, at last I found what I've been looking for, socialist to mean business. As the English delegates journeyed back home, Dutch sought to bring Ellen around to support for revolutionary Bolshevism. The two argued on trains, in taxis, and in hotel rooms, until, as they stood on their hotel balcony in Paris on New Year's Eve, while the crowd danced below in the square, the romance of the revolution temporarily overcame her initial revulsion, and by the morning, Ellen had promised to join the future Communist Party when it would be formed in Britain. So Dutt has this romantic narrative of Ellen's conversion to support for the Third International, and it's full of excitement and tension, but it almost certainly elides a much longer process of soul-searching and internal debate. Ellen and nearly all her young friends from the movement, as the Fabian researchers and National Guilds leaguers referred to themselves, initially supported the revolution. In a world ruled by capitalist plutocrats, here was a group of self-professed Marxists seizing control of one of the major world powers in the name of the dictatorship of the proletariat. The revolution was a cause worth dying for, and those that gave their lives to the cause were as much martyrs as the communards on whose graves, uh, whose graves Ellen had visited on her first trip to Paris en route to the Zurich Conference of the Women's International League. The American journalist John Reed captured the enthusiasm and the hopefulness of the early days of the revolution when he described a funeral procession of Bolshevik figures slain in the Battle of Moscow in October 1917. He wrote, All the long day the funeral procession passed, coming in by the Iberian Gate and leaving the square by way of Nikolskaya, a river of red banners bearing words of hope and brotherhood and stupendous prophecies, against a background of 50,000 people under the eyes of the world's workers and their descendants forever. I, and this is John Reed, suddenly realized that the devout Russian people no longer needed priests to pray them into heaven. On earth, they were building a kingdom more bright than any heaven had to offer, and for which it was a glory to die. So you get a sense of this kind of initial enthusiasm, um, particularly of many foreigners. And the initial promise of the revolution led men and women from the center to the left of the political spectrum to support Lenin and Trotsky's cause in the early days of 1917-18. The schisms between the left began to surface only later as the Bolshevik regime took shape, and the brutality and centralization of Marxism in power revealed itself. For some, the violence perpetrated by the Red Army was reason enough to condemn the revolution. Although a surprising number of self-professed constitutional and pacifist leftists proved willing to condone the excesses of the Bolsheviks as necessary in the cause of revolution. Further divisions surfaced once the revolution had been secured and the nature of the Bolshevik rule revealed itself. 
And by the mid-20th century, most had come to accept that socialism of practice meant state control and direction of industry and resources. But in the 1910s, it had not been clear that this would be the case. And so guild socialism, for example, is kind of an alternative model, right? It's a real bottom-down model of participatory socialism. And the guild socialist enthusiast Douglas Cole refuses to join the British Communist Party exactly because he objects to the Bolshevik scheme for state socialism. And Ellen, too, in the years before 1920, had voiced aspirations for a more participatory model of utopian industrial reform. So why did she, why did she attend that meeting um, in 1920? Her decision can't be explained solely by Dutt's persuasive force or by her weariness with arguing him, with him. Rather, it lies in Ellen's impatience with inaction and gradualism and her optimistic belief in building a brave new world on the, sh- sh- ah, on the ashes left over from the war. For the, first, for the past year and a half, she'd witnessed the failures of incremental reform, from the weakness of the trade boards appointed by Lloyd George's coalition government to adjudicate wage rates for sweated laborers, and this is something that as a trade union activist she was very much involved in, to the timidity of the trade union leadership who feared appearing unpatriotic by waging strike action during wartime. Ellen, in her personality, was a doer, not a talker. And the communists were, as she put it, taking a stand for the new time, and she was determined to take that stand alongside them. So it's in that spirit that as a representative of the Manchester Guilds League, even though she'd moved down to London, she's still a Mancunian child and um, has a Manchester base. So she goes as a representative of the Manchester Guilds League alongside Mary Morehouse, who she traveled to Geneva with alongside Dutt that winter. And she and Mary, and this is, I think, crucial to some of the ways in which um, she becomes disillusioned with communism later on, are amongst only 19 women present out of a total of 152 delegates at the conference. And it's an early sign that the Communist Party is not going to concern itself overly with women's issues in these early years. The atmosphere inside the conference hall was, as Ellen put it, intense with an earnestness and termination of the delegates. After a silent tribute to the men and women who died in the cause of revolution, including the German communist leaders Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the delegates set about defining the policy and constitution of the new party. In her sole contribution to the debate, Ellen made an uncharacteristic statement that revealed how deeply her decision to join the new party was rooted in her desire to revolutionize British society. The fiery young woman, never known for her obedience to anyone, insisted that if we were going to have a revolutionary party, we must have a general staff and be willing to obey it. A revolution meant discipline and obedience. Just a few years later, the formation of the first labor government um, would lead Ellen to rethink where her loyalties ought to lie. After 1924, it became clear to her that revolutionary change, if it were to come, would arrive on the heels of a labor government. Yet her conviction that revolution would only be achieved through unified ranks carried over into her relationship with the Labor Party. And this is here, I think, where a lot of today's debates about loyalty to continue to resonate. Although she would always remain on Labor's left wing, she repeatedly trimmed her politics to the party's course rather than resign on principle and leave her pol- herself politically isolated. In 1920, however, with Labor holding less than 10% of her, the seats in Parliament, it's less clear that the party could deliver real reform. Communism, at least, offered action, and I think that's how we should understand this decision um, to join the Communist Party in 1920. And also the fact that it didn't seem a black-and-white choice, because she remains 
a member of the Labor Party. And it's not until 1924 that she's forced to make a choice between the two of them. And the fact that when she does make that choice, she chooses, um, chooses labor over communism, I think reflects a conviction that's emerged, um, at least in her mind by that point, that labor is the way forward, that if there's going to be an alternative government to conservatism, it's going to be a labor government, and that however flawed the labor, labor leadership is, and she hates Ramsay MacDonald, the first labor prime minister. I mean, she thinks he is spineless. She thinks he's sort of greasy and cretinous and gradualist and, you know, like everything bad you could say about him, she feels about him. Um, but she also thinks that he's effective at winning elections. And as such, she's determined to support him because she's determined to see a Labour Party in power. So I want to briefly um, read from a section, which hopefully I've kind of dog-eared a few places, um, where that decision to support Ramsay MacDonald's administration, despite her, um, her problems with it, leads her into a difficult moral choice. And this is one where um, her feminism comes up against her support for the party. And it has to do with the issue of birth control. So <coughs> Ellen is, she starts out, even before she becomes a Labor Party counselor in Manchester, she starts her political career as a suffrage organizer. Before women achieve suffrage, she works for um, the Election Fighting Fund, which raised money um, to fight against the, the Liberal Party, basically, and to support Labor candidates because the Liberals were seen as reneging again and again on their promises to introduce women's suffrage. And as a, um, as a feminist, in the early 1920s, she repeatedly supports votes for, and sometimes um, in her early career seconded in Parliament, um, the introduction of a bill on the provision of information about birth control to working-class women. Um, which is perceived as being a feminist issue. But then in 1928, she backs, up, she backs off on that support and decides that she's going to follow the party line, which is essentially that birth control is not a political issue, that it should be left to conscience, that the church should be the arbiter and not politics. So Ellen's first biographer, Betty Vernon, who published a brief biography of Wilkinson in 1982, attempted to excuse Ellen's reversal on the issue by arguing, quote, it's highly improbable that she would have trimmed her sails had she appreciated the need for disseminating information. But in the 30s, the link between poverty and overpopulation was obscure. Vernon's statement is disingenuous on two fronts. For one thing, the link between poverty and overpopulation and their relationship to debates over birth control was by no means obscure in the interwar period. It's not a coincidence that one of the two birth control clinics for working-class women operating in London in 1921 was run by the Malthusian League. For another, Ellen was firmly convinced of the value of information about contraception to working-class families. Prior to the 1928 Women's Conference, when she backs the party line that this shouldn't be a political issue, she'd been an outspoken supporter of improving access to contraception. In 1926, she'd been one of a small number of Labour MPs who'd voted in favor of Ernest Thurdle's unsuccessful private member's bill to authorize local authorities to provide knowledge of birth control methods to interested married women. She continued to sympathize with the pro-birth control lobbyists within the party in the 1930s, albeit not to the point of championing their cause on the conference floor. So why then had she trimmed her sails in 1928? Although the fiery particle, as she was sometimes known, was capable of great flights of idealism, at the end of the day, she was a political pragmatist, and she was also ambitious. She'll go down in history as one of the more left-wing MPs to serve in government under three different prime ministers, 
Ramsey McDonald, Winston Churchill, and Clement Attlee. Yet she would never have become a junior minister, let alone the second female labor cabinet minister, if she not exhibited a certain degree of nous in knowing when to pick her battles and when to hold her fire. Years after her death, the left-wing MP George Strauss would say of her she was a politician. If it appeared to Ellen that something was not politic, she would withdraw her support. Certainly, Ellen did not always put her career before principle, but here was a chance for her to move from the radical fringe to the center of the party in 1928. She was not willing to expend the little political capital she'd accrued fighting what she recognized to be a feudal battle against the established policy of the party on birth control. In refusing to support the Women's Conference's demands on birth control, the party leadership, as I mentioned, was concerned first and foremost with the Catholic vote, um, which they were actively courting in cities such as Liverpool, where the old Liberal Party was greatly weakened. More broadly, the party leaders were looking forward to the next election and were extremely reluctant to force any issues that would divide the rank and file. In the minds of the male-dominated leadership, the women were behaving selfishly in trying to advocate for an interest group instead of looking to the best interests of the entire party. Given the marginalization of women within the party organization, a marginalization Ellen had in the past years attacked, this criticism rings hollow. Rather than special pleading, the women were instead making a rare united stand on behalf of an issue of great importance to them as a collective. Nonetheless, not only the leadership, but Ellen and many others were willing to sacrifice the women's interests to their hopes of finally securing a parliamentary majority. The consciousness amongst more radical MPs that they have knowingly set aside many of their long-held convictions in an effort to secure victory in 1929 goes a long way towards explaining the depth of resentment that's felt against MacDonald after he betrays the party in 1931. In October 1931, he um, breaks up the government and forms a national coalition government with conservatives um, and the few remaining liberals on the argument that someone needs to take a tough stand and make budget cuts in order to secure international loans to keep the country going and keep the country on the gold standard. Ironically, the national government um, then takes the country off the gold standard just a few months later. But you have these MPs, of which Ellen is one, who feel this real crisis because they feel that they had put party loyalty as paramount, that they had made a lot of political decisions that didn't sit easily with their conscience because of a desire to rally behind the leader and not show exposed divisions within the party. And the 1928 moment in this debate over birth control for Ellen personally is one of these key moments of sacrifice of her political ideals um, in the name of party unity, although there are others. And well. There are no means exact parallels thinking this morning about the debates around Corbyn's leadership um, got me thinking about the way that party unity was understood by Ellen, um, both in her decision to leave the CP um, in order to remain within the Labor Party and her decision to um, backpedal on various policies over the course of her career in order to maintain that position within the party and to work within it as opposed to outside it for reform. So I'm conscious of time and I'm going to stop there, but it's something I'd be happy to talk about in the Q&A. Um, we'll uh, move um, into um, questions now uh, and uh, open, open the floor to questions for Laura. So um, if you'd like to um, let us know your name and affiliation, if you have one, um, uh, when asking your questions, and also wait for the stewards with the, the roving microphone to get to you before you ask your questions. So um, does anybody have any, any questions? Stand at the front. Um. 
Thank you for the talk. Um, I'm Dr. Keith Postler on the accounting staff of Birkbeck and also um, an examiner um, for the third year accounting uh, course in security analysis and valuation. Um, your talk raised uh, three questions, and I'll only pay place, uh, um, place one of them. Um, and that is, uh, I wondered how um, I wondered how she funded this activity in this in this movement. Um, a good question I, I for an accountant. You I, I realize you didn't really address that in your talk, but if you could comment on it, it's something that uh, at least interests me. And I hope the question isn't too private. No, it's not. I mean, and she. One of the principal answers is through journalism. And my first book, um, Your Britain, Media and the Making of the Labor Party, was actually the way that I got to know Ellen. Um, because in the early 20th century, there was a lot of debate within the left about whether or not writing for the mass circulation press or collaborating, as some saw it, with the BBC, which was seen in its early years as being very much an institution of the establishment. I mean, in some ways it is, still is, but in specifically the conservative liberal establishment. Um, was something that could be morally justified, or whether or not the mass media was essentially inherently inimical to socialism and should be you know, pushed to one side while socialists sought to, to educate people for socialism through more pure and less sort of populist um, modes of political education and communication. And Wilkinson, from an early period, was you know, very pragmatic about the mass circulation press. She said, you know, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express are read by millions of people. If we want to make socialist, we dumb down our arguments to a degree and we write about them in a kind of folksy populist way. And maybe then people reading on the tram or the bus on their way to work kind of pick up something from our arguments. And so that was partly, and she's, she's a real voice in that debate. And others like Herbert Morrison, um, the grandfather of Peter Man Mendelssohn, um, you know, not, I think, entirely coincidentally, are also very vocal advocates of engaging with the mass media within the early Labor Party. And so I got to know her that way. Um, but the thing about engaging with the mass media is it, it helps you speak to people, but it also makes money for you. <laughs> I mean, she, used to, she was able to bring in, by the time that her career is at a high point, several hundred pounds for articles in um, the Daily Express, l longer feature articles. And that funds a lot of her international travel. She also, um, when she goes to the U.S., she always goes on speaking tours that are arranged by an agency. Um, and so she's talking to women's groups, she's talking to socialist groups, but she's not doing it for free. Um, and so she has these, um, these sources of income that are kind of extracurricular, but she also has the benefit, which a lot of labor MPs did then, who were successful, of a trade union job that's essentially a sinecure. Um, after the first few years in it, right? And her union is very supportive of her career throughout it. And when she goes to India for three months on this fact-finding mission, they allow her essentially to take a leave of absence um, so that she can go because she's ostensibly, she's not an MP at that point. She's supposed to be doing trade union work. But, um, and they don't say, you know, you have to make a choice here. They say you disappear for three months. Um, they fund her political campaigns, her election campaigns. Um, so she has that union backing, and part of that is because she has a very strong relationship with John Jagger, the president, the longstanding president of the union, who is a kind of political mentor figure for her. And the way that she talks about him, and she actually writes a fictional novel about the general strike um, in, 
which she publishes in 1929, but there are kind of clear analogs between Jagger um, and herself and characters in the novel. And it's a kind of relationship of a younger woman with an older man that has kind of elements that are maybe slightly sexualized, but is a kind of mentor-mentee relationship, right? And I think that's very important for her. And I think that a lot of women who, um, these early, early female MPs, <clears throat> Jenny Lee's relationship with Charles Trevelyan is in some ways not dissimilar, um, have these kind of older male political mentors who kind of help their career along in those stages. So... Hey, I was just going to ask on this this kind of the last part of your talk, the transition to becoming um, more prominent within the Labour Party. Um, it seems like there's a lot of elements which, like, you, you might be able to trace um, theoretically in terms of you mentioned the, the I think it was the first meeting of the Communist Party, the, the gender division, but also like some of the elements of political culture which kind of funneled her in certain directions or led to this compromise. Is there any either like fragments in like earlier pieces of her work or as during this period of her life where she articulates in a theoretical sense like this process like is it something you think she's acutely aware of so like well um yeah in relation to birth control that like that does she articulate a theory about like why gendered um issues are sidelined or the way in which like she would have to compromise in certain ways but not others to become more more of a stalwart within the labor party and is there any contradiction between I don't know if you've encountered any works of like political art- articulation or, or political philosophy that, that she writes or comments upon earlier in her life, and is there any? Can you see any antagonism there, or is it something she's she's conscious of? I think it is something she's conscious of, but I think the one thing about Ellen is that she's not a theorist in the way that she talks and she writes. That she has a kind of theory of the way the world works, and I think she has a theory of the intersection between kind of gendered issues and class, which very much informs her political advocacy on behalf of women. But she also, she kind of compartmentalizes her life in ways that allow her to wear certain different hats. And so her work with the women's movement um, sometimes is just, you know, hanging out with bourgeois women, right? She comes from a two up, two down in South Manchester and is the first person in her family to go to university, but she does go to university, and she's educated, and she speaks French, and, and then she comes down to Westminster as an MP um, in 1925, and she rents a flat in Bloomsbury, and she kind of likes Bloomsbury bohemian life, right, and she hangs out with Vera Britton and Winifred Holtby and Time and Tiders, and kind of is, part of her is in that Time and Tide world. Time and Tide is a feminist political journal that's um, very middle class in the 1930s. She writes for it throughout her political career. and So there is part of her feminism that is this kind of equal rights, class-absent feminism, but then her activism on behalf of women in the House of Commons is always very conscious of things like the ways in which anomalies legislation and the distribution of women's pensions and widows' pensions sort of often affect working-class women in specific ways, such as, I mean, she sort of has this quixotic campaign against the provision in the Widow's Pension Act in which women who marry a man who is over the age of 60 are not entitled to his pension because the assumption um, amongst kind of a small-L liberal um, set of older male MPs is that this would have to be a mercenary marriage. And you know, her view is this has, says more about class than it does about, you know, 
age gaps in marriage, because think about how many of these male MPs are you know, over 60 and married to significantly younger women, and did they believe that their marriages were necessarily mercenary? And she says, you know, do you really think that some 54-year-old woman is marrying a you know, 60-year-old man and then waiting as he, till he shrugs off his mortal coil, as she puts it, um, to get his measly pension from the state of you know, a couple shillings a month? Um, and so she's, she is sort of conscious about the ways that certain stereotypes about um, you know, the working class and their morality then are, you know, play into specific kinds of discrimination against working class women in legislation. Um, that's only one of many examples. Or the ways in which, um, again, thinking about women's civil servants and their pensions and the assumption that men are breadwinners and women aren't. And therefore, men should have larger pensions because they need to be providing for a family. And she says, you know, it totally writes off the world in which, um, you know, single women are often looking after their mothers or looking after, you know, disabled family members or other people's children and that they ways and the construction of women as being without dependence and being dependents themselves is a fictional construction. And so she's, she's very conscious of those things that she doesn't articulate them in a theoretical language. And I think one of the things about Ellen that makes her a good populist politician is, is the kind of very plain-spoken way in which she writes, um, which is, it's not, folksy is a bit unfair, but it's meant to communicate with a broader public more than an Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Down at the front there. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Heather, um, and I'm actually from Jarrow. Um, I, I was just wondering, because with, um, with Jarrow, obviously, the, the, the March of the Crusade is such an integral part of local history. It's something that's very prominent in... Uh, in terms of even just sort of local decoration. You're always yeah. sort of tripping over statues of it. Um, <laughs> but Ellen Wilkinson was someone who I knew nothing about till, till a lot later on, and she seems to have been almost forgotten, whereas in terms of sort of the, the few other important figures that have come out of Jarrow, sort of Charles Palmer, they've all sort of been lionized. I was just wondering if you think there's any reasons why her role in the Jarrow March uh, and her other political roles have sort of been sidelined, even locally. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess she's got a statue in the Morrison's car park, is the one I've seen, right? Um, and I, it's funny, because um, I was in a Waterstones the other day, and the guy said to me, oh, I bet your book sells really well in, in, in Jarrow. I'm from Newcastle, and you know, but it was clearly... So she's not, I think, not unremembered, but there... The fact that she dies young and that when she dies, she dies in a cloud of controversy. I mean, if I had taken this talk in a very different direction and if the theme of the um, festival had been different, I could have talked a lot about grammar schools and her attitudes towards them. And there was a lot of anger at Wilkinson after her death amongst the left um, about the fact that she was seen as kind of instantiating the tripartite school model um, of grammar schools, technical schools, and secondary moderns. Um, which then evolves into the sort of grammar school comprehensive um, divide over the next several decades. And I think that harms her reputation as a short, medium term. Um, I think if you look at that 1950 um, Labour Party poster with Jarrow, right, it's not one where Ellen 
is the front woman. It's, a, it's of the men, and it's part of a very masculine narrative about full employment, which is a male narrative, right? I mean, when the Atlee government is thinking about full employment, they're thinking about full male employment. And I think the work that she does in publicizing Jero, and she, um, she really uses her femininity and the anomaly of the fact that not only is she a woman, but that she's this itty-bitty woman, right? She's like four foot ten, and she's marching with, because to get selected to go on the crusade, you had to be fit and healthy, and so it was mostly these kind of larger, you know, and the, the visual, and she's consciously playing on the visual to get publicity for the crusade, and keep it in the newspaper, and keep it on the picture page, and knows that her role helps in that, um, and that that work that she's doing, which is a kind of a publicity work and a work that's playing on her gender, is kind of written out of a different narrative, which is about male full employment, I think, after the facts. So I think that's part of it. I don't, there are probably many explanations. Hopefully it will change. She's actually Middlesbrough, where she served as MP from 1924 to 1929, has just um, had a campaign and decided to erect a statue for her, is raising funds now to kind of bring up her, her work in, in Middlesbrough as well. Hello, my name is Marion Shaw, and I'm a retired academic. Um, you mentioned Winifred Holtby. Yep. Doubtless you've read South Riding. Yep. And you know the idea that the heroine of that book, Sarah Burton, is based on Ellen Wilkinson and the red hair and everything else. But do you think that that novel, which is a sort of fictional version of a socialist society, um, modified and fictionalized, was a valuable representation of what Alan Wilkinson was trying to achieve? I think that, I mean, I actually, I've come down here this morning from York, right, and so I have become um, a Yorkshire lass through marriage and vagaries of my husband's academic career. And I think in some ways, it's not, I don't think the South Riding is a depiction of a kind of imagined socialism. I think it's a picture a depiction of a community and a community that's changing and in some ways a nostalgia on Winifred Hopi's um, part for a kind of communitarian ideal that's lost, right? You know, I mean, that I'm blanking on Sarah Burton, the guy she's in love with's name, right? But he's in some ways a, a kind of old school Disraeli and Tory, right? You know, I mean, he has the best interest at heart of his community, but he's, you know, he's kind of classic Tory. Um, and I think that Sarah's character, and who's the guy who's the kind of, you know, wounded in the First World War socialist, you know, do have this vision of a different future. What? He's a communist, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read South Riding, but, you know, I mean, then they have this vision of this future that um, she then allies herself with. Um, but that there is, that it's about a kind of backward and forward looking and a nostalgia for... And also an attempt to empathize, right? That empathy is, is one of the underwriting themes of that. So, I mean, I think in terms of Sarah's character, what is Ellen-esque in it, right? And Holtby denies that it's based on Ellen, though it very clearly is at one point. And there's one point in which Sarah Burton is compared specifically to looking like Ellen Wilkinson um, in the novel. But is this sense of both a sort of a self-made woman, which she very much, you know, and an independent woman... And also this woman who has a kind of, well, in serious cases, sort of developing. And by the time that Winifred Holtby knew, Wilkinson had developed a kind of independent sexual identity. Um, and Wilkinson reviews the book then for Time and Tide 
and talks about this sort of central question of women's sexuality in the book, and particularly of older women's sexuality. And for Wilkinson, who, as someone who had a self-made career as a political woman and kind of didn't get married, she was proposed to at one point, turns down the proposal, and focuses her career throughout her 20s on her political advancement, and only really in her late 30s kind of what she's gotten there becomes aware of herself as a sexual being and then has this series of extramarital affairs with her colleagues, basically, who are all married off to people they married when they were 22. Um, you know, that this is a kind of a crisis of the working independent woman, basically. And, and that is the context in which Wilkinson understands the central crisis. And I think that that's the fact that that's what she sees in self-writing says in South Rising says as much about Wilkinson as it says about Holtby's book and what Holtby is trying to do. If you haven't read South Riding, I highly recommend it. And they actually made a kind of mini-series, didn't they? Maybe four or five years ago now of it, which, is, which was quite nicely done, I thought. Oh. Yeah, question down at the front here. Oh. Thank you. Um, I'm Ruth Fox. Um, just a question about... Um, she was one of the first female MPs, and obviously young when she entered the House. Um, it's been a long-running debate for women MPs since Nancy Astor was elected about life as a female parliamentarian. I just wondered if she had ever written about or spoken about her experience of the practice and culture of, of the House of Commons and um, how that affected her life, her work, um, and what, if anything, she tried to do about that. Um. She actually is most eloquent on life in the House of Commons in, an, in the second of her novels. So she wrote, the first was Clash, which was a novel about the general strike, but she writes a second, a detective novel. She's sort of an Agatha Christie fan, right? And she writes a novel called The Division Bell Mystery, in which someone is murdered as the division bell rings. Right? But, um, but in it, again, the heroine, surprise, surprise, right, is um, you know, like a young female MP. And she talks a lot about kind of the experience of being a young female MP in Parliament in that. And... Um, and the one quote that I, um, has always stuck with me is that young women MPs have to spend as much time thinking about what they're going to wear at their maiden speech as male MPs think about what they're going to say in it. Right? Um, and, <clears throat> and in her journalism, she also talks about this question of, of dress specifically. And, but she, she also, one of her great successes um, during her first term in Parliament is managing to get the members' dining room open to women and not just guest at lunchtime, but, like, dinner guest, right? <laughs> and it's an uphill slog, and it takes her years and years. And the other one is to um, get a larger mirror installed in the, the women's dungeon, which is the room that the small number of women MPs shared, right? She has these kind of, um, you know, the first is about the hypocrisy of, of women being serving in parliament, but not being able to bring other women to parliament, or women being voters, but male men not being able to bring their female constituents to dine. And um, is it, the second one is is you know sort of about the recognition that women have different you know have sartorial needs which are legitimate, given that femininity is not exclusive with parliamentary participation, and that women should be provided with you know, um, with a mirror that they can see themselves in, basically. But, um, but she also takes an interest in a way that most male MPs haven't in the lives of the catering staff and the kitchen staff um, in the House of Commons, who she sees as human beings. And, and she does write about them. She dedicates her second novel to them, actually. Um, and is, I think there's a gendered aspect there about the idea that 
that service work, that kind of domestic work is, um, shouldn't be kind of written out of the operation of the House of Commons. Um, so it is something that in various sort of bitty ways she does address throughout her career. Thank you. I'm Mandy Barry, and um, in, I'm here partly because I'm always interested in um, uh, activists who uh, worked on the Votes for Women campaign in the early part of the 20th century. So my question is, um, with the schism with the Pankhursts mm-hmm. and the East London suffragettes and Mrs. Pankhurst and Christabel, where would you more typically have found Ellen? Um, you, I was interested in her pragmatism. Mm-hmm. And where would she have been in all of that? And would she have supported the dropping the whole campaign for the war, etc.? Or would she be, have been more in the East End with Sylvia? So she wasn't in the East End with Sylvia, right? I mean, that's one of the things that... Um Others who've written on Wilkinson say, oh, it's surprising that she wasn't a suffragette. She's a suffragist. She joins um, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies in 1912. As I said, her first paying job is working for the Election Fighting Fund in Manchester. Um, she says the richest she ever felt was earning um, two gold sovereigns a week as an election fighting fund worker. Um, and I think that those, the reasons why um, are partly to do with the kind of human contingency of events. Her sister, who's eight years her senior and um, sort of helps raise her, is already a member of the NUWSS, and she joins following her. But they're partly to do, I think, with political pragmatism, right? I mean, she doesn't... And just general ambition. She works very, very hard for a university scholarship. And she gets to university and then has to scrimp and save doing this election work on the side to... um, <clears throat> to sort of be able to pay for her senior common room dues so that she can be in the Women's Union Debating Society. And she doesn't want to be thrown in prison as a martyr on the, on the issue. And so, she, you know, and so she works constitutionally, I think, and there's, there's a personal... And that's not to say that a lot of working-class women who had a lot to lose, you know, didn't, weren't involved in um, the suffragette campaign. But I think she... She just doesn't see it as worth, you know, she doesn't see throwing away her future, I think, when she's young as kind of the best way to advance the cause of suffrage. And as she moves forward, she and Sylvia Pankhurst work together much later on anti-fascism. And they come together in a sort of partially funded by the Comintern campaign um, for women against war and fascism. But until then, she has very little political relationship with Sylvia Pankhurst in that they're moving in very different circles. And that's partly because the world, um, other than Lady Rhonda, who owns Time and Tide, right, that she is largely, she largely doesn't move in a suffragette circles. And I think that's part, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think partly also the relationship between the NUWSS and the Labor Party um, meant that those were the, you know, the suffragists were the people who politically she also was more likely to come in contact with in the 1920s, the former suffragists. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, if, there are, if there are no more questions uh, for Laura, I'd like, um, I'd like to thank you again for a, a really fascinating talk. Um, it, was, it was very interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm very pleased that um, the library was able to support your research in, <laughs> in the way that we did and that you, that you used us a lot while you were doing it. Um, 
So thank you all also um, uh, in the audience for coming um, and, and spending time to, to listen to Dora, uh, Laura today. Um, there are um, uh, lots more um, uh, interesting events in the liter literary festival still to come today and tomorrow. Uh, so please do take a copy of the programme on your way out uh, if you haven't got one already. Um, and just a reminder that uh, copies of uh, Laura's book, um, uh, Red Ellen, um, are available outside the, uh, the theatre uh, this afternoon. Um, uh, and we're very grateful to, to, to Laura for, for staying around for, to, to sign copies of those afterwards. Um, so uh, thank you all very much. And I'd like you to join me um, in thanking uh, Laura once again for a fascinating talk. Thank you.